Right, welcome everyone. Today we have with us with us uh, author Matt Ridley, one of my favorite authors of lots of books that I currently even my son is reading. My nine-year-old son is reading Rational Optimist right now and is really enjoying it. So fantastic! I, I'm excited about that. <laughs> I hope uh, it cheers him up. Yes, exactly. Uh, but today he is joining us to talk about his latest book, Viral: The Search for the Origins of COVID-19. Um, Matt, thanks for joining us. Uh, not at all, Carlos. Great to be with you again. Nice to see you. So let me start uh, directly. Why, why, why write this book? Well, I think there's no more important topic than where this pandemic came from at the moment. Uh, it's devastating. It's done huge damage. We need to know how it started so we know to make sure it doesn't happen again. Um, and yet I'm seeing all around the world from early 2020 onwards, a surprising lack of interest in asking and answering this question, where did it come from? Um, the scientific establishment doesn't seem to be very interested, and they told us very early in the pandemic we could rule out the laboratory origin. It was bound to have come through the market. Um, that seemed a little premature when we looked at the evidence. Uh, the journalistic uh, mainstream didn't seem terribly interested. They were Everybody seemed to be sort of accepting that the Chinese authorities would um, solve the problem and we'd be okay. Well, I don't think that's good enough. Two years in, most pandemics, we'd have solved it long ago by now, um, particularly given modern technology. Uh, two years in, the, the trail hasn't gone cold, but a lot of people are acting as if it has, as if there's no more to say, that we may never know, that kind of thing. That's just not good enough. So I was very keen on understanding the what was known, what was not known. And I was taking at face value what the scientists were telling me in the early few weeks. I now find they were saying something completely different behind my back, which I find really annoying. Um, <laughs> and at a certain point, I came across a scientist who was more open-minded and who, who was saying, actually, some of the evidence does seem to point towards a laboratory. So it's an open question. It's probably the market, but it might not be. We need to investigate. Her name was Alina Chan. She was writing some really interesting stuff, making some very interesting analyses of the genome of the virus. And so I eventually suggested we team up and write a book together. Um, and uh, in relatively short time, we did. Um, you know, I did the first draft. She rewrote it. I rewrote her rewrites. She rewrote my rewrites. We did all this within about eight months, which was um, fast going and great fun. Well, not great fun. It's a horrible topic. It's a horrible story, Millions right? Of right. people are dead, but very, you know, very engrossing uh, as a subject. So it's a pretty fantastic uh, effort on your end here, because the book is incredibly detailed on on lots of aspects of of even background that that you had to put together to understand potential sources of uh, of uh, of, uh, of a new pandemic, for example. So I mean, I'm amazed you were able to do that in eight months. That's really, really congratulations, I suppose. <laughs> well, it was a steep learning curve on some aspects of virology. I mean, luckily, I've written several previous books on genomics, so I do do understand genes, genetics, DNA, RNA, things like that. But uh, it was a, still a very steep learning curve for me, some of the virology. Um, uh, the, bi the biology of bats, you know, things like that is important. What pangolins are, you know, all that kind of stuff, which comes a bit more naturally to me as an evolutionary biologist. But it was, um, you know, Alina is right at the forefront of this field. She's at the Broad Institute, which is the leading genomics institute in the world. Uh, and she works on viral vector engineering, so she's right in this field. 
So just let's 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 line out the two hypotheses here. So the the main the main issue is uh, whether we can establish with some sort of confidence whether this was a zoonotic is that the right word? I guess that's the, I'm using the right word. Uh, uh, escape, which means that somehow a virus that exists in some animal is able to then jump into humans and become uh, able to infect from humans to humans. That that's the the there's lots of and we can talk a little bit about history of, of different aspects, different virus that have been able to make that jump and how we figure those things out. And the other hypothesis is whether this came out from a lab, somehow it was not a zoonotic jump, but rather it came from a lab leak. And just to be clear, when we say lab leak, that does not imply necessarily an engineered lab leak, something that was, you know, a virus that was engineered in the lab, but rather something that might have been studied in a lab, natural virus that might have been studied in a lab that somehow made its way out of, out, out of a lab. Is that correct? That's correct. Yeah, no, that, that's exa exactly right. I mean, it's, it, I think a good way to think about it is to say, to start with what we do know um, and then what we don't know. So what we do know is that this is a bat virus. It's a virus normally found in bats. And uh, the, that's true of all SARS-like coronaviruses. That, that, and it's not just any bat, horseshoe bats. They don't live in North America, by the way, or South America, so you're okay over there. You know, you're not going to get one of these pandemics in, in the Americas, um, in passing, that is. Um, so we know it started in bats. We also know that the bats that carry these viruses are mostly in southern China. And this was discovered by the scientists at the center of this controversy, Dr. Xi Zhengli, uh, over the last 10, 15 years since the SARS epidemic. Um, they're in Yunnan province and uh, Guangdong province. They're way down in the south of China uh, and also in Southeast Asia. They're not found in central China. But now that's interesting because this disease broke out in central China, it broke out in Wuhan, a city with no obvious connection to these kinds of viruses. Indeed, a city where there's been quite a lot of surveying of bats in the region around there. And very few of them have coronaviruses, let alone SARS-like coronaviruses. Um, how far? So, the, so, so, so everybody knows how far uh, is the the that province from Wuhan? Well, the the key site in Yunnan, where they found the closest relative, uh, is one thousand eight hundred and eighty-five kilometers by road from Wuhan. That's New York to Orlando. To put it in perspective, it's and a long. Bats way. don't fly. Bats don't fly those. Bats those don't fly those distances. Bats don't migrate like birds. You know, birds go huge distances when they migrate. Bats do local migrations, but nothing like that. They, they tend to live locally. Um, uh, so, uh, did it uh, did it start in Wuhan? Yes, that's the other thing we know. So we know it's a bat virus, but we know it started in Wuhan. How do we know that? Well, all the early cases were in Wuhan. There's, we've not been able to find a single exception. All the cases in Wuhan converge on one or at most two different ancestral virus genomes. So uh, th there's, there's vanishingly little doubt that it began in Wuhan, but it came from a bat a long way away. So the, quest the central question we have to answer is how did a bat virus travel at least a thousand miles to uh, the, the other place? Now, there are really four ways it could have happened. Two of them we'd call natural and two of them we'd call research related. So the first way is Back in Yunnan, somebody's farming uh, an animal that is susceptible to this kind of virus, 
near a bat cave. The bat droppings land in the animal's cage. The animal gets infected. The, the animal is then shipped to a market. It's eaten by people. And in that process, people get infected. That's what's happened in SARS. That's what happened in 2002, three in the case of SARS. Uh, the animal that, that carried it was mainly the palm civet. Um, and we, they were able to establish this very quickly. First of all, by spotting that the early cases were all food handlers, chefs, things like that. And secondly, that the food they were handling was palm civets and that the palm civets were infected. So, you know, and it was a 99% similar virus. The other three ways it could happen is that it could be a person who carries it all the way from um, uh, Yunnan to Wuhan. Let's say a, a villager who farms near the, 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 the bat cave, goes into the bat cave one day to collect some guano to spread on his fields or something. People do that, gets infected, catches a train to Wuhan to visit his family, falls sick, gives it to them, that kind of thing. Um, the third way is that that's, that person who travels from Wuhan might have been a scientist. Because one thing we do know is that scientists were going into caves in Yunnan to look for bats and look for viruses in bats on quite a significant scale over the last 10 years. Um, uh, and the fourth way could have been that the that it traveled as a sample brought back by those scientists to be examined and experimented on in the laboratory. And that's where things get interesting because we know that exactly that was happening. Well over um, uh, 100 SARS-like coronaviruses of different, of different ones were brought from Yunnan to Wuhan to be studied because Wuhan was the site of the Wuhan Institute of Virology, which is the leading institute in the world for studying SARS-like coronaviruses. Not in China, not in Hubei province, in the world, right? Now, I mean, uh, uh, Chapel Hill, North Carolina will run it a close second because they do experiments on these kinds of viruses and one or two other places, including in Shanghai and so on. But Wuhan is, you know, if, if you'd said in 2019, I want to go and study SARS-like coronaviruses, the first advice you'd have got would be go to Wuhan. That's where the bulk of the papers on this, on this are published. That's where the most of the viruses have been put into genomes, uh, databases, and so on. So it is prima facie <laughs> quite interesting that, that this, you know, let me give you a little parallel here. In Britain, in 2007, there was an outbreak of foot and mouth disease in cattle. Uh, it happened 13 miles from the world's leading reference laboratory for foot and mouth virus studies, right, at a place called Purbright in Surrey. That wasn't a coincidence. There was a leaking pipe at the lab, uh, and a contractor was called in to mend the pipe, and he went straight from there to a farm, and he infected the farm. It turned out, you know, that was what came along. This is pretty similar, frankly. You know, the, the, a SARS-like disease breaks out in the in very close to the laboratory that is the world's leading SARS-like disease studying laboratory. But we need to prove that we can't just we need to find the leaking right. pipe and the contractor, if you like. Um, so, uh, and and that's what our book is all about: is trying to piece together the evidence for that idea and also for the alternative idea that it might have been uh, a market event like SARS. Um, but the problem with that is that quite early on, the evidence was pointing away from the market. Uh, they tested all the animals in the market, found none that were positive. They found some virus in the market, but it was 
on countertops and in the sewage and things like that. It was from people, not not from animals. Um, and uh, they tested 80,000 animals all across China in the wild, on farms, in the wildlife trade, everything. They still haven't found this virus or a 99% cousin of it in any animal at all. They're finding it now because people give it to mink and cats and things right. like that. But, but, but from, before, from the start of the pandemic, no. So the facts that we know, as you pointed out, is that it's a virus that came from a certain area of China, a certain a southern province of China, where there's lots of these horseshoe bats that carry lots of different kinds of SARS-like viruses, which of which we've been studying throughout the last 20 years. A lot of study being done on that, on on those particular viruses from the from from the with samples being collected there and sent to the premier premier laboratory in Wuhan, uh, uh, the the Wuhan Virology Institute. Is that correct? Correct. Yeah. We also know that um, the virus, well, well, we, we know for a fact that there's no, we have not been able to find any trace of the virus in any animal in the market, where at first the hypothesis was somehow somebody contract, contracted by eating something from the market. That's rule out that we haven't found any animals that was sampled around the time and, and, and subsequently. And then you mentioned no animal uh, uh, that could have been the link, right? So the idea here is that there's a there's this sort of intermediate host between the bat yeah. that the yeah. bat doesn't come and bite you and people don't typically eat bats so you have to have some sort of like intermediate host for for that to to take place and we haven't been able to find that there was a there was a trail of the pangolin that was a turns out to be a trail full of problems early on to, to tell us a little bit about that yeah that's well that's that's one of the, the the reasons i got really involved in this was because of the pangolin story falling apart uh, February 7th, 2020, press conference in uh, uh, Guangdong University in China saying, we found this virus in pangolins. It's 99% the same. Um, problem solved, case over, all good. Three weeks later, four papers come out, published in prestige journals in the West from Chinese groups saying, here are the pangolin viruses. Uh, we've analyzed them. Here's their genomes. Here's what they tell us. Drill down into the papers go through the repetition of the same samples with different names and things like that, and you find they're talking about three pangolins, all of which were part of a shipment that was of smuggled pangolins that was intercepted in March 2019, all of which were in Guangdong province in the far south of China. This is nowhere near, near um, Wuhan. Wuhan. And all of which are um, 90% the same, not 99% the same. Well, that's not good enough. That's not the same virus. That's decades different, evolutionarily speaking. So um, uh, it, 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 uh, the, the pangolin story fell apart pretty quickly. And, and one of the reasons it fell apart is that my co-author, Alina Chan, um, looked into the data behind the papers, found it was inadequately reported in all sorts of ways, uh, uh, frankly, disgraceful ways. And two of the papers have now had um, corrections printed in the journals saying, I'm sorry, these papers were all wrong, you know. So uh, it, it really was a, a pretty shocking episode of bad science, the pangolin story. But it did, it did its job. It put Western journalists off for a few months and everyone said, oh, I gather it's the pangolins, you know, et cetera, et cetera. There were no pangolins for sale in the um, Wuhan market. We know that actually, because by chance, we later found out that somebody had been studying the wildlife that was for sale in the Wuhan market in 2019, and it didn't include pangolins. Um, 
it included a number of other species which the Chinese seem to have missed when they tested the animals in the market. So that that's intriguing, and you know we need to look into that. But it didn't include pangolins. It certainly didn't include bats. So the, the let's speculate for a second. Uh, is this a case of just people trying to jump on a bandwagon to get some papers through and and gather some temporary fame and hopefully nobody catches it, or there's any potential sign of nefarious interference here? Well, what you have to understand is that as soon as the pandemic broke out in Wuhan, um, a, 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 a major general who is also a virologist in the uh, Chinese People's Liberation Army was put in charge of that institute. Uh, and she cracked down very hard. And so did others in the Chinese Academy of Sciences. And basically, no scientist was allowed to publish anything without state permission from then onwards. Uh, and uh, it looks to us like there was specific direction. You will, not you won't publish this, but you will publish that, <laughs> if you like. And it looks like there was a coordinated attempt to get the pangolin story into, into um, the published domain in uh, uh, February of 2020. We can't say that for sure, but it, it, right. it certainly looks that way. That it, and, and uh, you know, it, that's not necessarily nefarious. What they're saying is, oh, good, we've solved the problem and it doesn't implicate our lab. Right. Right. Let's right. make the most of this. Let's get it out quickly. Let's ask several teams to, to go to work right. on this. As motivated reasoning, right? Like, oh, find something that I motivated like the story. Reasoning, exactly. Let's go with that, and let's not let's not forget let's forget about any other thing that could be could embarrass us, could could create some some sort of crisis. Exactly. Um, so let me let me ask you a question that that uh, uh, I have a hard time understanding the the details of it in the book. Even there's a lot of details in the book about virology in particular. And again, I'm a yeah, I'm afraid so, there are there are uh, passages that get quite hard to follow. And exactly right, but but I think the the key question that I have on that is that we know that in 2012 there were some workers in the mines, uh, a copper mines in in the Hunan province that fell ill with SARS-like infections, uh, viral pneumonia, and, and and which later viruses from that from the tissues from their lungs got identified um, as something very very close to what we have now in COVID-19. So we know that. That was a big span of time. Now, those six six miners, six miners, right? Mm -hmm. Three of they them died. Three of them survived. Three of them died. Three of them survived. The three older one died, right? The three younger one run survive. Again, something that 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 rings a bell relative to what we see in COVID-19. Uh, they got treated in hospitals without any particular special precaution. Uh, somehow that 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 virus was not capable of escaping uh, and infecting other people around them. They got in touch with people. It just that there was no transmission there. So somehow the virus they were able to contract in a mine, most likely because of a intense exposure of guano, uh, uh, I don't quite understand, but like particles probably, right? Going through their nose, they're, they're, they're breeding that for a long time. And that's how that, that particular infection was able to take place. And there was no subsequent transmission outside of that. So what I'm asking here is that these viruses live in, in mammals like, like bats, for example, and some of them are able to infect humans, but not in a very easy way. There's a chapter Correct. you described the fact that spillovers are quite rare. There's a lot of studies of how these spillovers from an animal to a human, it, 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 they're different biology, they're different cell types, they're different uh, spike proteins that you need to have in order to attach to a human cell, right? Uh, so viruses are not necessarily well adapted to infect humans. So 
they are able to, but not with high probability. That's how I read that evidence from, from those workers that then. Uh, and somehow we go from that virus that was not particularly able to infect humans very uh, easily to a virus that is incredibly adapted to infect, to infect humans. The human to human, I mean, what, what we see now in Omicron is just like, a, is a, is like you know, bravo, Omicron, right? <laughs> we came exactly. up with a very nice vaccine and you came around yeah. and you know, just <laughs> obliterated our ability to stop you from transmitting. Um, how do we go from one to the other? Yeah. Well, to be clear, we don't necessarily need to go from one to the other. We, we, we don't know for sure that the viruses they collected from bats following that they collected from people, we don't know what, what those people died of. Okay? okay. In fact, just in the last day, uh, Dr. Xi Jingli has given an interview saying they didn't die of virus, they died of fungus. Now, um, uh, that contradicts what she and a number of our other virologists said at the time, and we have the evidence for that. There's a medical thesis from Kunming right. University Hospital at the time, which says that everybody agrees this is almost certainly a viral disease. And the Institute of Virology, the key is in the name, um, Xi Zhengli and her colleagues, go to the cave where these guys got infected, the mine shaft, uh, and on at least seven occasions that we know of over the next two years, they visit that site in order to sample the bats to try and find a virus because this looks like the first ever case of a SARS-like virus caught directly from a bat by a human being, of a SARS-like virus that was capable of infecting a human being, albeit not very infectiously, as you point out, because nobody right. else got sick. So, and, and you know, the, the viruses they found in the bats, nine of them, ended up in their freezer and were studied and sequenced in up to 2018, 2019, um, and were uh, turned out to be the closest relative of SARS-CoV-2 when the pandemic broke out. You know, the closest relative of this virus was in their own freezer. That's quite interesting. Right. But... You're right to point out that, that the bat virus they brought back from that mine shaft is not capable of uh, causing a pandemic. For one particular reason above all others, it lacks a thing called a furin cleavage site, which is a little stretch of, of RNA, it, that's its equivalent DNA, um, uh, which uh, enables it to reshape its proteins, makes it much more infectious. And the fact that SARS-CoV-2 has got this thing is the reason we're having a pandemic. Now, it's a very rare thing to find a virus with one of these. We've never found a SARS-like virus with one before. Never. And they, we still haven't. We still haven't. Okay. Uh, they've found other quite close relatives of SARS-CoV-2 in Laos, and they don't have the fear in cleavage sighted. So it's odder and odder. The more viruses like this that we find in bats that don't have a, a furin cleavage site in, the more weird it looks that this one does. And here's one of the suspicious things about that. Starting in about 2007, scientists put furin cleavage sites deliberately into viruses to make them easier to grow in the laboratory. And they did that initially with pseudoviruses or, or, or single virus genes rather than whole viruses, but then they did it with whole viruses too, not just coronaviruses, but other kinds of virus. And 
just in 2018, a team at the Wuhan Institute of Virology did exactly such an experiment with a relation of MERS, with a virus related to the MERS disease. Um, that's the one that came from it, camels. That, that's that's right, the one that came from camels disease. in the Middle right, East, right. exactly. So the, the, the habit of putting furin cleavage sites into wild viruses to make them easier to grow in the lab was quite common, and it was used at the Wuhan Institute of Virology, among other places. What's more, the Wuhan Institute of Virology's US partners, the EcoHealth Alliance, um, put in a proposal to uh, DARPA, part of the Pentagon, for funding to do exactly that experiment on a SARS-like virus. And they were turned, this was in 2018, they were turned down. They were not given permission to do that. Uh, sorry, not given the funding to do that experiment by the American government, but they might have got it from the Chinese government. So we do know, as Alina puts it, right, um, finding a, 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 a furin cleavage site in a SARS-like virus is like finding a horn on a horse. It's like finding a unicorn, okay? It's a very rare thing to find. We know they were planning to put horns on horses in Wuhan. We know they were capable of putting horns on horses. A horse with a horn on has turned up. up in... What? <laughs> exactly, it shows up in Wuhan. Shows up in Wuhan. Um, and we're supposed to say, well, that's just a coincidence. It may be, you know, coincidences do happen. But at the very least, it's reasonable to ask the questions, could we look at every experiment you did over the last few years in the Wuhan Institute of Virology on the viruses you haven't published yet because you've published no genome sequences since 2016, but you, we've been, you've been collecting a lot. Could we have a look at that, please? And that's where we're hitting a brick wall. The answer is no, we can't. Why not? So, so it's not just, and I like to highlight, it's not just that coincidence could happen. You, you're giving me a lot of like really rare situations that, well, yeah, there's, there's the, the horn on the unicorn, uh, on the horse, and we found a unicorn in the streets. Like, you know, that there's a, the trail is pretty, pretty strong here, but could happen, could be a coincidence, you're right. However, the evidence on the alternative hypothesis here doesn't, it keeps, we, don't, we don't keep finding anything on the other potential hypothesis, which is the zoonotic jump. Mm -hmm. uh, exactly. which, 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 by the way, in other situations, you have found, you describe a lot of situations in which uh, uh, there was such event, and, and we were able to trace it back. We were able to find the, the, the intermediate host. We were able to get to the trail that led from one certain animal, sometimes through some hosts, into, into humans, right? Um, and we have not been able to find that at all. That, that particular updating on the probability of that hypothesis, I'm a Bayesian by training. So I start with a prior after you start reading the book that, well, there's something here that maybe my probability is a little bit higher in the Wuhan hypothesis, but the lab leak hypothesis, but I'm not, I'm not sure because, you know, of course, I'm, there's a lot of uncertainty. And then you start telling me part of the stories and like, you know, my probability is growing, growing, growing over here, my posteriors now. But the one on the, on the zoonotic one doesn't get any update. That's right. Um and, uh, you know, there is no evidence for uh, a zoonotic spillover of a natural kind in a market at the moment. Um, remember, in the case of SARS, it was three months before basically the problem was solved. Uh, they found out who was getting it, which animal they were getting it from, 
and where they were getting it in the markets. Um, sure, they didn't know where the virus had originated yet, that is to say, but they very they did a survey within about five months uh, and found the similar viruses in bats. So by then they were looking for bats with, with it in. So, so well within a year, you, you know that it's a bat giving it to a palm civet, giving it to people, okay? In the case of MERS, um, they found uh, this, uh, somebody died of this uh, horrible disease in Jeddah, uh, in Saudi Arabia, um, it wasn't. It was a few months before they figured out that camel handlers were catching this disease more than other people. They tested camels. They found the virus in camels. They figure it's probably a bat virus because all these a lot of these coronaviruses are. Its relatives have been found in bats. They haven't quite figured out which bat it came from to get into the camels yet. But you know that's going to. In the case of a, a nasty disease called Nipah, which broke out in. Uh, the early 2000s in Malaysia, uh, N-I-P-A-H, it's spelled, don't know how you pronounce it, but um, uh, not, not a coronavirus, but a lethal disease that uh, killed a few people. They figured out that the that pigs were, were giving it to people, and they quite quickly found that pigs were eating mangoes that had been dropped into their cages by fruit bats, and it was originating in the bats. Case solved. Here we are in 2020, which is when we first started looking into this, right, right. by far better technology than they had in those cases. Way superior, faster, more accurate ways of testing for DNA and RNA in the environment, in animals, for sequencing in seconds. I mean, it took, you know, it took a month and a half to sequence the SARS genome in 2003. That was spectacularly fast. Everyone was really impressed. Today you do it in, you know, two days, okay, <laughs> to get a first genome of SARS-CoV-2. So, so we've got much better technology. So we should have found the evidence, if there was some, long ago, back in early 2020. And here we are in 2022, and there's still no evidence of any infected animal. Now, um, uh, it could be that there is some reluctance to blame the market in the Chinese authorities too, for one reason that's quite intriguing, which is that just two years before the pandemic broke out, President Xi Jinping had persuaded his friend, Dr. Tedros, the head of the uh, World Health Organization, that the WHO would recognize traditional Chinese medicine as a legitimate form of medical care. Uh, this was, he's, he's a very strong champion of this uh, traditional Chinese medicine. Now, traditional Chinese medicine has some things in it that work and a lot of things that don't because it's not based on experimental evidence. So for example, eating pangolin scales will do wonders for fertility. <laughs> exactly, it's fingernails. Right. <laughs> I mean, it's the same stuff as fingernails. Might as well chew your fingernails. <laughs> um, uh, so so the, you, you can sort of see in some of the pronouncements coming out of the Chinese authorities, a reluctance to blame the market as well, which is why they came up with this wacky theory that it reached Wuhan on frozen food from abroad. Two problems with this theory. One is no evidence for it. Generally, we use to, we like to find evidence for a theory. Uh, and, and two, um, it's highly implausible when you think it through. Why would it 
only infect people at the end of the frozen food chain and not at the beginning or along the way or in other cities or anything like that so um uh but you know and then then the one of the chinese government spokesmen then decided to blame uh an american lab leak he said it probably came out of university of north carolina Carolina. hill they do this kind of work um oh so you do think it was a lab leak (laughs) you just think it was an american lab leak (laughs) (laughs) exactly um so Right now, I mean, a year ago, or maybe a little bit more than a year ago, it, you know, you're asking those questions, you're talking about this, put you in a category of, of uh, conspiracy theorists without, you know, like crazy people, right? Um, and, but that's not quite the situation right now. I think right now, the, the it came, scientific community even came around a little bit and at least are willing to be uh, agnostic about it. Like, well, we don't know. I don't think, I don't think perhaps our conversation here is leading to, to folks listening to it think that we are more on the side that it seems that the probability seems higher on the like leak hypothesis, but we don't know. We're, we're upfront in saying that we right. don't know. Maybe it's a little right. higher the probability, but that doesn't mean there's no uncertainty. And I think the scientific community is at least uh, uh, um, getting to the point where, well, maybe it's even odds right now. <laughs> we don't know quite. Is that, is that a well, fair assessment of where we are currently? Yes and no. That's the way it looked back in the summer of last year after a, a series of uh, joint letters went to Science Magazine and a number of other publications around the world saying we need to take both hypotheses seriously. The World Health Organization investigation was a farce. Uh, we need to do better. And so, yes, suddenly the media woke up and stopped censoring um, any discussion of the laboratory leak. You know, Facebook had literally um, censored it up until that point. Wikipedia was you know, completely intolerant of any discussion of, of this stuff. Um, and, you know, um, uh, Jamie Matzel, who's a um, advisor to the World Health Organization and an author of books about this kind of topic, he he recounts how he uh, he, he wrote to his good friend uh, and my good friend David Quaman, who's a, written about biological spillovers before, and said, "Look, don't you think the evidence is is starting to suggest that we need to look at this?" And the reply from David Quaman uh, was, um, "How many people were on the grassy knoll and killed JFK?" So, in other words, you know, do you realize you're a complete wacko for for embracing this theory? Now, on the whole, we're not there anymore. On the whole, you are allowed to to talk about it. But there is a very strong pushback still from within the scientific community who do not want um, uh, this to turn out to be the explanation. They are sounding, by the way, like extreme libertarians. They're saying, look, trust us. We know what we're doing. We don't need regulation. Our labs are quite safe. You know, um, don't tell us what experiments we can and can't do. <laughs> uh, it's interesting for me to be on the other side of that argument. That, right, right. <laughs> um, uh, likewise, of course, the Chinese government has a vested interest. Most businessmen and most politicians are more interested in renormalizing relations with China or something than they are with um, pursuing this issue. So it's a relatively small number of us who are keeping the flame of this investigation alive. Uh, As I say, the World Health Organization has dropped the ball, frankly, by holding a farcical press conference, uh, I think two years ago today, funnily enough, in in, um, Wuhan, no, one year ago today, uh, it, which they basically endorsed the frozen food theory and ruled out the laboratory leak theory because that's what their Chinese colleagues had insisted on them doing. Um, 
so it's not it's not given that we will have a proper debate and a proper investigation. Uh, as far as we can see, the intelligence agencies in the U.S. had a quick look at it for Biden, and then haven't done anything since. And when I challenge this, some of my journalistic colleagues say, well, you don't expect them to give a running commentary. No, but it'd be nice if they said something every now and then or discovered something. Um, So it's not at all impossible that the water will close over the head of this pandemic without us having a good explanation. And for me, that's simply outrageous. I mean, for a start, it's not very helpful for preventing the next pandemic. But even just morally, it's just not right for the people who've died uh, not to um, uh, uh, not to find out why this happened. So uh, that brings me to, to a question I have, and that's maybe a little moving a little away from from the, the the trail here of the investigation. But it's the the sort of social aspect of how the no, the, the interaction between society and quote science have taken place in the past in the past two years. Um, I don't know. You might you you have more experience on the on the on the science world. I mean, you've been around. You've been you've been editor for the science uh, for the science part of the Economist for a while. Um, this notion that it it's it's something that com- hypothesis comes out and and immediately there is a dichotomy between the experts and nobody else can say anything about it. It seemed that it was very clear in 2020 that if you were able if you question, for example, that oh, I don't think this is going to kill as many people as Neil Ferguson is doing. You were deemed a just a Trump supporter, you know, whatever, a backward looking, yeah. it, it, and 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 doesn't matter the evidence coming in and showing that those predictions were all completely out of whack. You don't have to, no, you don't have to. They don't have to justify that. And, and it was a series of those things. It was the the severity and this the speed in which it's going to spread it was wrong. Um, whether or not we should wear our masks and or not was wrong. Well, let alone the fact that the evidence for, for, for that doesn't doesn't seem to add up. But still, we don't. Once there's a decision that the that's what the experts, the court, or, or at least the, the elite opinion is, or whatever, it's impossible to move away from it. Um, do you have any sense of why that is the case? Because that seems to be another one of those instances where no, we for whatever reason which I don't quite understand why the elites in the West would be so pro-China on this and completely ignore the possibility of something coming out, but, but so be it. I mean, maybe that's a very good uh, work by the, by the Chinese spy community. I don't know. Uh, you know, back in the day, we would blame the KGB. They were pretty good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, the KGB did it, right? Um, but now we don't do that. So is that social dynamic somehow, I mean, it's, 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 it's exhausting to live through it because even at universities where I live, that seems to be that we don't care anymore about actually asking questions and, and being, you know, skeptic, skeptics and trying to investigate things. It, it, the swing swings back and forth between the current truth. Mm. There's, a, there's a wonderful video clip, which I strongly recommend looking up, um, of Richard Feynman, the great Nobel Prize winning physicist, uh, giving a lecture, and he says, so how does science work? Well, first of all, we guess, and everybody laughs. And he says, no, don't laugh. You know, we guess what the answer is. We then look for evidence that supports or doesn't support that guess, and we then decide whether the guess was right or wrong, okay? And it doesn't matter um, how many letters after his name the man who made the guess was, It doesn't matter how clever he is, what institution he is, if the evidence says 
the, the guess was wrong, then it's wrong. That's science. You know, that's the definition of science. We, we, the, the evidence always wins, not the theory, right? And for me, this is what's been going wrong recently, is that we have uh, um, allowed people to argue from authority, to say, look, believe me, because I've won the Nobel Prize or I'm the professor or whatever, I know what I'm talking about, I'm right. Um, he might be right. He often is on some subjects, but it's the evidence that makes him right, not his degree, okay? And that's a very important point. So science has been behaving much more like a priesthood than it should in recent years on a number of issues. And you see this in the way that it manufactures a consensus, right? A scientific consensus. This is the answer and everything else is heresy or blasphemy or wrong. Now, it's always done this to some extent. Look at the way, you know, Alfred Wegener suggested continental drift. They told him, don't be stupid, you're an idiot. Uh, Charles Darwin suggested uh, natural selection. Um, or, you know, much more recently, right up until the 1970s, uh, eating fat causes heart disease. That was an enforced consensus by one very evangelical scientist and his allies. And it turned out to be wrong. And it took us very, very long time to undo that. Um, uh, uh, most people still haven't heard that that's wrong, as it were. So why does this happen? Well, in my view, the vital feature of science that keeps it honest, that prevents confirmation bias ruining it, and you know, professors just looking for evidence that supports their pet theory and not looking for evidence that disconfirms it. Um, the vital ingredient is the decentralized nature of science. It's in universities all over the country. And uh, Professor A puts up a theory and goes out and finds some evidence that's consistent with it and says, look, I'm right. And Professor B says, don't be so stupid. Of course, you're not right. I've found some other evidence which shows you're wrong. You're an idiot, blah, blah, blah. And they have a row. And eventually we decide which has the stronger evidence. But when Professor A and Professor B both sign a document saying this is the consensus, whether it's on how much climate change there's going to be or whether fat causes heart disease or uh, whether um, uh, how bad COVID's going to be or whether it came out of a laboratory, when they sign up to a consensus, it's no longer behaving like science. It's behaving like uh, a good old-fashioned religious institution. Um, and... Uh, for me, uh, uh, science has become a huge institution with a lot of very centralized funding, which enforces consensuses uh, on it. And you see this very clearly in the case of um, this uh, problem of where the virus came from, because in early February 2020, the main funders of virology research, Dr. Anthony Fauci in the US and Dr. Jeremy Farah in the UK, were on a phone call discussing the possibility, they thought it might even be a probability that it had come out of a laboratory, but within days they're sending a message to all the other scientists, this is nonsense, it's ruled out, we go the other way. And please write articles saying that. Go out there and shut this off. Shut down that hypothesis. These, that's the words that Francis Collins, uh, Fauci's boss, in effect, used. Um, uh, and... 
the, just think of the signal that sends if you're in a virology lab and you're a mid-level scientist. I'm going to be asking these guys for a grant to keep my job, to enable me to advance my career. I'd better stick to this consensus um, because these guys have this huge funding power of me. It doesn't have to be a quid pro quo. It doesn't have to be um, because you've been a good boy and stuck to the consensus, we're going to give you a bigger grant. It just has to be, you know, it doesn't have to be that explicit. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, so soft, that I soft, think is a soft pressure. Right, right. What, what science needs is red teams. We're not getting red teams. We're not getting well-funded opposition to the conventional wisdom. And that's what we should be getting. And that's true, not only in the hard science, I think that that's true in, in, in social science a lot and, and a lot of places where, Certain opinions, certain ideas, certain hypotheses are just not entertained these days, and uh, universities have to do yeah. better. Yeah. So, as they say, what's the opposite of diversity? University. University, exactly. <laughs> let Let me end. Let give you a chance to. to I think you, you use a quote from Casablanca in the book. Do you remember? <laughs> I do. Um, uh, Rick, the owner of the Rick's Bar in. Um, in Casablanca, Humphrey Bogart uh, says of Ilsa, Ingrid Bogman, of all the gin joints in all the towns in all the world, she has to walk into mine. That's <laughs> well, absolutely of, brilliant. Of all the cities in the world <laughs> for a coronavirus outbreak to happen, Wuhan is pretty unsurprising. That's right. That's right. Matt. Thanks for joining us. Uh, thanks for writing the book. Thanks for being on this trail. This is, this is God's work. Thank you, Carlos. It's really enjoyable talking to you. I hope we'll see you soon in person because it's great that we can think about traveling again. We'll do. All right. <laughs>